I, I've mentioned it a few times in the last uh, few uh, years, but I, I have this uh, odd, uh, well, number one, I have a very scattered attention uh, thing that happens, and, and part of that is that, that I'll uh, start working on something and I'll pick out something that just sort of catches my interest and, and start researching it and studying it. And so I, like the last few weeks, I've been studying the Talmud just because for whatever reason, uh, I, it, it caught my interest. And, and, uh, but a, a couple of years ago, I, just out of the blue, I, I was sitting and working on something and I got to thinking about Mike Tyson. And I remember being in elementary school and we used to watch uh, our gym teacher I guess so that we didn't have to do anything educational, he would show us the Mike Tyson fights. Um, I imagine he probably wrote the pay-per-view off of the taxes, and we'd watch the whole, like, 48 seconds of the fight, and you know, we'd go on and do something else. We'd watch hunting videos, and it was really, really weird now that I think back on it. But um, I, I, a few, few years ago, I got to think about Mike Tyson and watching these fights, and I thought, I wonder how I'd see that now. And I've been watching his career, like working my way through his career and comparing him to other boxers, just, you know, never been interested in boxing before, but just all of a sudden I thought, hey, this is kind of neat. And the thing that, that strikes me about Mike Tyson was that most of what he did really well was be scary. That's it. Um, and if you, could, if you could get hit by him, I've read several articles about this, if you could get hit by him and manage to not get knocked out, and not manage to like be so scared of him, you didn't want to get back up, which sometimes happened. Um, you could do really well against him, like because the guy never went past like three or four rounds. And and I've been thinking about that this morning: the ability to take a punch, and then to hit back the right way, not to be distracted by one thing or another, not to get angry, not to get um, fearful, not to get um, aiming at something that doesn't make any sense, but to be able to take a hit and. And think clearly, which is hard. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been, you know, probably no, because, you know, we live in the peaceful land of Montana. But, but there's something about getting punched that, like, the world sort of takes on a different time frame, and it's really easy to freeze. And, and so as we dive into our text today, I'm talking about this for a reason, right? And, and I'm not going to stand here and say, like, oh, if I was fighting Mike Tyson, I wouldn't wet my pants and fall down before he hit me, because I probably would. Um, but as we dive into the text today, what we're going to see is we're going to see Peter and, and John in a spot, and they're going to take a hit. And we're going to look at how they responded and how they interacted with it, and we're going to talk about what this teaches us. Um, because, like, this is historical narrative. We're all in the book of Acts. We're working through Acts. Uh, Jeremy talked about Acts last week, uh, and we're picking up where he left off. And, and in this historical narrative, the real trick is to look at it and say, what are we going to get out of this? What is the principle here, or what are the ideas here that are worth pulling out and applying in our own life? And as I looked at this, and as I mulled it over, there's a whole bunch of different things, and different people have preached different sermons about this and approached it in different ways. But the coolest thing to me is that Peter and John step into this situation. They're in a spot that any... Jewish man in his right mind would be kind of scared, and they step up, they take their lick, you know, and then they fight back, and it's amazing. And so we're going to get into this, um, you know, and, and really a little background, okay? So in the last sermon, Peter and John are out, and they heal a man, right? A lame man, they help him to walk, and then they do a bunch of preaching, and um so, like, we're picking up at that point. Um, 
a little background, like here's some Jewish stuff, because all of this is going to play into Jewish politics. And we're all really itching to hear more about politics this week, right? <laughs> so um, at the time, the Jews were ruled by the Romans, who had come in like a century before, two centuries, yeah, about two centuries before, and like beat up the, the Jewish people and taken over their country. And they're living under Roman rule, and they're really unhappy about it, and they've had several uprisings that always ended badly, right? Um, because they just weren't tough enough to fight the Romans who were the whole world. Almost nobody was. And so um, the Romans had this deal where they allowed the Jews to um, govern themselves uh, to some degree, and the Jewish ruling council was the Sanhedrin, and it was made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? We all know the difference between them, of course. The Pharisees, they're not fair, you see. No, I'm not going to make that joke. Um, (laughs) Too late. Uh, The Pharisees were um, sort of the common men, right? Like the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believed in the prophets. They believed in everything in the Jewish Bible. And they had this attitude of, you know, like, like we are a royal priesthood as a nation. We're supposed to take on all of these things that the priests are supposed to do. And so they had really crazy laws and strict regulations, and, and they were nuts. On the other side of that was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were um, sad, you see. In reality, the Sadducees were, like, rich, and they were in a political class that was set apart, right? Um, and they did this, they accomplished this by, um, and if you track backward in Jewish history, they bribed their way into the priesthood over the temple. <laughs> and then they got out and they said, everything the Pharisees are saying is wrong. The temple is the only way to God. Ignore them. We don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe in the prophets. We don't believe in any of this nonsense about following the temple laws. You must come to the temple. And why did they do that? Um, possibly because they were religiously convicted, more likely because the temple preserved their way of life. They were rich because they ran the temple. They were rich because they ran the temple market. So if you went into the temple, you wanted to offer a sacrifice, you had to trade your money for their money at an exchange rate. You couldn't get it anywhere else, just there, and they would like blind you with the exchange rate. It's like going to Canada. Um, and then you would, you, know, you would go and you would make your offering. You couldn't just make your offering with your own money. Um, or temple sacrifices. They would sell you your sacrificial animal. You couldn't bring your own. Like it was, it was a whole racket. And these guys were powerful and they were wealthy. And they did an awful lot of stuff to preserve it. Um, and in particular, they did not believe in the resurrection. Um, they didn't believe in the resurrections, whereas the Pharisees did. We're going to get into that in a minute. But there's a great deal of the way of life for the Sadducees that is all based on that temple thing. And in fact, when the temple was gone, you know who else was gone? The Sadducees. They disappeared completely from history when the temple disappeared because they didn't have anything to bring to the table. They were like purely political animals. Again, I'm not talking about the world today. Do not like pick this up and run with it. This is ancient Israel. Um, All right, so we're going to dive into the text. And as they were speaking, so the, Peter and John are teaching. As they were speaking, the priests and the captain of the temple 
and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so we got three people who were there, three groups. The captain of the temple. Now, the captain of the temple guards was a powerful dude, right? Like he had his own little army that was the temple army. Um, armed guards, they could go out and they could do certain things like within like the, the scope of Roman law. These are the guys who arrested Jesus. The captain of the temple guard was almost always in the succession line to become the high priest, right? Like it was a really, it was a political post that had a great deal of muscle behind it, right? Because you were the temple muscle. And eventually you would become the priest, the chief priest. Like that was sort of the order of things. Um, the priests who were all Sadducees, right? Um, and then the Sadducees themselves. And so like these guys all come out and they see Peter and John teaching and a huge crowd has gathered and is listening to them. Um, and literally thousands of people are going to be converted at this point. So they're seeing this, and like for the Sadducees, this is no bueno because, number one, you don't want more people buying into the resurrection because it threatens your deal, right? Number two, this Jesus person, we all remember who he is, right? I don't need to give background on that. He was murdered not long before by the Sadducees. <laughs> and so if people are getting excited about resurrection and Jesus... That's bad news for the Sadducees, right? Like, it's big bad news. Are they doing anything illegal? No. There's a big trick there. Hear me out. They are doing nothing illegal except they're ticking off the Sadducees, the chief priests, or the priests, and the temple guard because they're teaching something that is dangerous. Um, to take it a step further, if you go backward in history and forward in history, every single armed revolt against Rome came out of the resurrection crowd, right? Part of the reason for that is that um, the Sadducees had no reason to rebel. They were living high on the hog using Roman power to be rich and comfortable, right? But like the folks who were preaching the resurrection were also preaching the Messiah, and part of the Jewish idea of the Messiah was he's going to show up and chase the Romans away. And so like these guys are looking and they're like, this is bad, it is no good, this is dangerous to us, and so... And they arrested them. Why? Because they were preaching something that was dangerous to them. Um, and they put them in custody until the next day. So they arrested them, dragged them off to jail, threw them there overnight, for it was already evening. Um, these guys sat in jail overnight because they were preaching a sermon that these other guys didn't like. That's it. It threatened their base. There was no debate about the truthfulness of it. And you're going to find what's going to happen here is nobody ever says, take it back, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or prove it. It is an amazing thing. You never see the Sadducees say, prove it. All they say is, no, don't say that. Right? Because they don't care what the truth is. They care about them. Um, and they arrested them, put, in, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The number of men came to about 5,000. Um, they did not count women and children. And so Peter and John are probably on the teaching steps outside of the temple, or they're still in the, the baths or whatever, and they're preaching. And there is an enormous crowd of people listening, and these people are buying it. And the, the, the um, Jewish authorities are like, this is bad for us. Get them out of here. So they dragged them off because they had this huge crowd they're preaching to, and they're winning the crowd over, and it's bad. And it is 
decidedly unfair, right? Can we all agree on that? They're cheating. They're using their power to cheat. Um, And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander. So now these four guys are there. Annas is the high priest. Caiaphas is the old high priest who happens to be father-in-law to the current high priest. It's weird how that sort of thing happens. They're all related. The high priesthood was bounced around in the political elite, um, and they controlled Jewish, like the Jewish temple and the government. Um, John and Alexander are probably a son and a son-in-law, but there's a little bit of debate about exactly who's being referred to here. Um, But one way or the other, the bosses came together, and they gathered around, and they said, all right, let's try these guys this is no good because they have already converted, you know, in the neighborhood of 10,000 people out here to their teaching, and we can't have that. Why? It's dangerous to us. Not is it true, not is it, you know, uh, good for the nation, not is it anything. It is dangerous to us. And so the high priest family is there, and when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Now watch this, because they're not asking, is this the truth? They're asking, by what power or in what name do you do this? Part of it is the teaching, and part of it is what happened in the last chapter. Well, this guy who was born lame and had never been able to walk is suddenly walking. How are they doing this? Like, how can you just come out and do this? Where do you get the authority to heal this guy? Right? Which, by the way, again, does anybody like read this as a little insane? I mean, like, they're demanding of them, how did you heal this guy? Not like, hey, you obviously have something good happening. Can you explain it to us so we can buy in? So we can know something? I mean, this is all about them. Then Peter, so now they have taken their hit. They've sat in jail overnight. They're in a position that is dangerous because these guys, like, had Christ crucified, right? They have the authority to have them whipped. They have the authority to do all kinds of stuff. Um, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if I were being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. Okay. So Peter, put on the spot, immediately, having taken his punch, in a position where he's got, you know, the Mike Tyson of ancient Israel standing before him, And, like, intimidating him down. Because this would be an intimidating place, right? He steps up, and the very first thing he says is, I healed a guy, and I'm on trial for a good deed. But if you want to know how I did that good thing, it was Jesus who was resurrected, who you guys killed. So he puts it right back on them. By the way, this patterns after the first sermon we see Peter preach in Acts, where he stands up at Pentecost and he's like, hey, guys, Jesus, who was God's Messiah, who was sent, y'all killed him. And they were all like, oh, my gosh, we killed the Messiah. What do we do to be saved? And that was the response. It was, oh, my gosh, we really ticked God off, right? Like, 
you know, oh, that was your son. I'm sorry I killed him. You know, I mean, they're in a position where suddenly they're terrified and they're taking it seriously. Peter takes the same tact. The first group, their hearts were soft and they were convicted by the wrong that had been done. In this case, we're going to see the opposite. And so Peter steps up and he says, he uses the word sozo here, by the way, when he says healed. Um, I believe it's in verse 9, by this man has been healed. Um, the word there is sozo, S-O-Z-O is the, uh, it would be like sigma, omicron. anyway. Like it would be the, the word is sozo, healed. Um, so he tosses it out there, he says, listen, God raised this man from the dead. Now he does something really tricky here, because the Sanhedrin, he would be before this crowd, and it would be like a semicircular sort of, uh, seating set, right? And there'd be two stenographers, not actual stenographers, but two people writing stuff down. And they had a job. The people in the crowd would hear him talk and they would judge him, right? And you would have the Pharisees on one side and the Sadducees on the other. And then the two scribes were supposed to write down everything argued in favor of this guy being guilty. And then the other guy records everything in favor of them being innocent. And then they weigh those two options against each other, the two accounts, and that's how they decide the guilt or innocence of these guys. But there's a big problem there, and that is they didn't do anything illegal, right? So you have Pharisees and Sadducees sitting up in front of them, and Peter tosses out a political hand grenade. He says, God resurrected him. Now, they don't want to have an argument about the resurrection. You know why? Nobody in the room wants to argue about it because these guys believe it and these don't. And like Peter's basically set them against each other right out of the gate. And he does it not to win his trial. Rather, he does it so he can say, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is the way this man has been healed. And then he goes on and he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has come, which has become the cornerstone. Now, this is Psalm 118 he's quoting, and this has always been assumed to refer to Israel, that Israel was the cornerstone. And Peter takes this text and reinterprets it. And instead of making the nations of the world into the rejectors, the builders, he says, you guys are the builders. And you rejected the cornerstone. You rejected Jesus. You failed. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no name under heaven given among men which we must, by which we must be saved. Now, in English, you lose something. Right? And here's what you lose. And there is salvation in no one else. The word there, which means salvation, is sozo, S-O-Z-O, or sigma, omicron, zeta, omicron, right? Like, sozo. He uses the same word for healed as he does for salvation. Why does he do that? Because salvation is being healed from our brokenness, our death, our sin. Like, it is not just the man's physical body that was healed. Like, like Peter's not making this big differentiation. He's saying, listen, if you want to be healed, if you want to be saved, if you want to be like made right again, that's the only way, by the name of Jesus. So they started saying, by what name do you do this? And Peter says, by the only name that can heal anyone. By the only name that you can be healed. Now the problem is, these guys don't want to be healed. Right? 
the problem is it's a little like um, I, I for years I worked with uh, alcoholics and drug addicts, and you talk to guys who'd say, you know, well, actually, there's nothing wrong with me. It's everybody else's problem, right? Everybody else is at fault that my life is a disaster. Um, everybody else is at fault that I'm, you know, broke or that I'm sick or I'm this. And it's never about their own illness. It's never about their own addiction. It's always about everybody else is wrong. In this case, it is guys who are comfortable, guys who are powerful, guys who are sitting in charge of everything, who are saying, take off. Like, we don't want to hear it. We'll be sick because we're happy sick. And we'll argue about this resurrection thing. We're not going to discuss the truthfulness of your statement. We're not going to inquire, how do you know Jesus was raised? We're not going to do any of that. We're not even going to engage it because we don't care. What we're going to do instead is judge you for threatening us. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated... The word uneducated there, by the way, is funny because it is very often translated as illiterate. <laughs> like, I, I, they're obviously not sophisticated. They're obviously like hillbillies and rednecks. I mean, these guys are from, you know, nowhere in particular, and they're fishermen, and they're really based, and they don't know how to speak the right language. They don't know anything. So these illiterate jerks come walking in here, and they're bold, and they seem to know what they're talking about. They perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. But they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Because what are you going to say, right? You didn't heal that guy. <laughs> nope, right? Prove it that he was raised. Well, they're going to point at the lame guy who now walks and say, hey, here's my proof. There's power in what we're saying. They don't want any of that. They're in a position where they either stay where they're at and be sick or they acknowledge the truthfulness of what's happening before them, be healed, but step away from their position, step away from their comfort. That is hard. I think that's actually hard then, but I think it gets harder now because when we really take Christ seriously, when we really take the message of the gospel seriously in our day-to-day lives, it threatens everything, right? It means that I am no longer the master of my world, but I am a slave to Christ. It means I am no longer perfect, but that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. It means that I need to share this truth with the people around me like i need to i need to put this out there i need to live different i need to you know etc 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 like i need to do the things that god has called me to do um what peter is able to do here like he stands up in boldness he's not afraid of of the big scary guys who are coming after him and then he hits him exactly where he needs to hit him and he hits him over the gospel right like with the gospel He hits them with the truth of salvation in Christ, not over, hey, this wasn't fair. You shouldn't have put us in jail, right? Not with, hey, aren't you going to discuss with us some some of this stuff a little more seriously? Hey, you know, you've besmirched our name. Hey, you know, you ruined our sermon. It is, 
I see what you're doing, but all I have is the gospel, and I'm going to bring that to you, and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to bring that to you. We see this trend over and over again. Paul ends up before Felix, and he's being tried by the local Roman governor, and Paul stands up, or like Jewish uh, Roman uh, fellow, and he stands up, and he starts talking about Jewish prophecy and about Jesus, and the guy's like, hey, 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 shut up. You're not going to convert me. Do you think you're going to come in here and preach to me and convert me? He doesn't even let Paul explain his point because he knows that he'd have to accept it and it would put his position in danger. And so, no, we're not doing any of that nonsense. You get out of here. Like, this is the challenge that we face in the world around us. And watch this. And don't take this lightly. We're living in a time of chaos, Right? It feels like chaos. It's not real chaos. It's intellectual chaos. It's everybody is scared and everybody's trying to be scared and everybody's trying to scare everyone else. And people are arguing about one political thing or another. In the end, what we see the disciples do in every instance of this is they step up and they say, Jesus is Lord. They step up and they say, you can worry about all this other nonsense, but Christ rose from the dead and it's the only thing that's going to fix all of this. The world is sick. The world is broken. The world is evil. People do horrible things. There are evil in men's hearts, and there are evil in the structures, and there's evil everywhere, and Christ is the only way to fix it. When I sat down and I looked, I said, well, what do I bring out of this? Here's what I'm bringing out of this. The world around you is scary, and it's intending to scare you. It's intending to scare you so you don't talk about Christ. It's much easier to argue about, you know, other nonsense right? It's much easier to argue about things that don't matter, that in five years we're going to not even remember happened. But in reality, Christ is the only thing that is going to carry through. This is the only thing that is going to matter. And so we can step up with the world and say, but our religious freedom, but our this, but our that. At the end of the day, Christ is it. We can waste all kinds of time and energy being angry at the news this morning, or we can back up and say, only Christ will fix this. Every one of these people is on their way to hell in a handbasket, and they're singing on their way because they are super comfortable in that handbasket, but Christ is the only way to be healed. There's division in our nation. How do we fix that? Christ is the only name by which anything is healed. That's it. That's what we got. But they had commanded them. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred. Leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, "What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further amongst the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name." So they back up and they say, all right, guys, like, get out of here. We're going to talk about this, which was standard procedure. You'd kick them out and you would debate it and decide how you, whether or not they were guilty and whether or not you were going to punish them and how you were going to do that. And they kick them out and they're like, well, guys, we got a problem. Like 5,000 people bought into what these guys were saying. It's actually probably more like 15,000. Anyway, like a whole ton of people were listening to them and a whole ton of people are accepting them and they're gaining popularity and they performed a miracle. Did you see that? How do we get people to stop paying attention to them? Not, is it true? Not, you know, how do we engage with this? Why don't we have the kind of authority that they have? It is the people are buying in. How do we protect ourselves? How do we stop this enemy? 
we did kill this Jesus guy. How do we keep them from talking about him anymore? We're trying to make him go away. They're so blind. They're so blind. They're sitting in a living room of a burning house arguing about the color of the curtains, right? And they can't intimidate these guys. That's the other problem they're going to encounter. They got nothing to convict them of. They only arrested them to shut them up. And now they've got them in there, and they're like, what do we do now, guys? We kind of painted ourselves into a corner. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So now, watch this. Peter steps up and he says, look, you can decide if we should listen to you or listen to God. But we're going to listen to God. I mean, he didn't even, like, give him the option. He says, look, you, you don't even care if what we're saying is true. You've got to decide if the truth or your deal is what matters. Because the truth is, Christ died for you. The truth is... Only in Christ is there sozo, is there salvation, is there healing, is there any hope for anything. But they don't care about healing, they don't care about salvation, they don't care about any of the stuff. They care about their deal. They care about winning. And when they had further threatened them, so they threatened them some more, they pulled their Mike Tyson axe, scare the heck out of them so they'll back off. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For they were all praising God for what had happened. Meaning, if they had said, all right, whip them publicly, what happens? Well, you got like 15,000 people who saw this man healed. You can't whip a guy for healing someone, right? Like, what do you do? Well, you bluster and you make a lot of noise and you let them go. They do whip them later, so it's coming. Um, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Meaning, like, everybody knew him. It's not like he was an eight-year-old who was healed. He was older. Everybody knew him. Everybody had seen him. He was a common sight. And so it was no secret that he was healed. Um, What do we do with all of this? I think I've painted it out really well, but I'm going to plug this hard one more time. There's a ton of arguing happening right now. There are a ton of believers who are arguing one way or the other about Every matter under the sun except for Sozo, right? We argue about masks. We argue about voting machines. We argue about borders. We argue about guns. We argue about this. We argue about that. At the end of the day, all of this stuff will pass away. I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm saying that if Sozo if healing in Christ, if salvation in the name of the one and only Jesus is the last thing you would argue about, like, then you probably stand in a crowd with me sometimes. It's not that easy to do, is it? It's easy to lose sight of the fact that only in Christ, only in the name of Jesus, that's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that's going to heal this world. That's the only thing that's going to going to fix the division. That's the only thing that's going to tear down the corruption. And it's not even going to really all happen until Christ comes back. This is our focus, folks. It's easy to get distracted, though, isn't it? Everybody's yelling, we're all going to die. The sky is falling and chicken little's circling around us, right? Only in Christ. 
We've got to come back to that every morning when we get out of bed. Only in Christ. Only in Sozo. That's the, only, the Sozo is only in Christ. Salvation, healing, the whole nine yards. People need to know this. They need to. If I die tomorrow and my political party is in power, if I die tomorrow and my 401k is enormous, if I die tomorrow and I've won every argument I've ever had and everybody sees me as a great wisdom, but I die without the love of Christ in my heart, without the sozo of Christ on me, I die with nothing. We're going to close in prayer. My challenge to you is to look at yourself. And ask, like, am I distracted? Am I chasing after the wrong thing? Um, I I watched a uh, watched a video the other day while I was preparing for this sermon, and one of my distracted moments, where this kid is playing soccer, and he gets the ball away from the other team and drives it into his own goal, and one of his own players tackles him <laughs> before he gets there because he's going to score a goal on his own team. Um, are we driving our ball in the wrong direction? Have we gotten lost on the marathon that we have to do? Are we still focused on the prize, on the goal, on Christ and Christ alone? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray that the scariness of the world, Lord God, the, the, um, the scary Mike Tyson of the world that stands up and says, shut up about Christ. Like, like I, Lord God, I pray that you would silence that and give us boldness in the spirit. Lord God, as we know that, that you know, we live in a world that is sick, a world that's dying, help us to bring Christ to the world. Help us to bring healing to those around us. And when they demand to know where that healing comes from, help us to preach the name of Jesus boldly. Help us to be peacemakers who are known as the sons of God. Help us to be the body of Christ. And I pray for your grace on the hearts of the people that we encounter, that they would hear the gospel like the like the folks who are traveling to Jerusalem on, on Pentecost, where they hear that, that our sin you know, has, has brought us God's wrath and that they would repent, Lord God, rather than that, that we would be like or that the world would be like the, the Sanhedrin, where they hear of their own sin and they, they get harder hearted. I pray for your grace and your mercy on this community and on those that we encounter in Christ's name. Amen.